Hello and welcome to session 22 of the Fire Science Show. First thing first, thank you to all of you supporting Fire Science Show through five star ratings, reviews, sharing the episodes with your friends, or donating to the podcast through the podcast website. I really appreciate all the community support, and I'm really happy that there is a community around this uh, show that's rising up, and that makes me very, very happy. Today, I have for you another interesting guest. You maybe remember episode 14, where I hosted Sarah McAllister, and we went on a journey through the scales of fire phenomena. Let's say today's episode is a sequel to that. <laughs> I am having a brilliant professor uh, from University of California, Berkeley, where he has just achieved his tenure promotion. Today with me is Professor Mike Goldner, and we're going to talk about combustion again. But again, we're not going to focus on a single phenomenon, but rather we're going to unravel how fluid mechanics plays a role in fundamental combustion, what fundamental combustion is to fire safety engineering, and what interesting outcomes come from this to every engineer. So I really hope you will enjoy this episode. And yeah, let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, welcome to Fire Science Show. I'm today with Professor Michael Golner from University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Michael. Nice to see you. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, so cool that you've joined the show, and I'm really happy that it's just a few days after you've been promoted to your tenure track in Berkeley. That's amazing, man. Huge congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I hope I'm the first one interviewing you as a tenured <laughs> professor. I think you are. I haven't done any interviews <laughs> since, so I, uh, so cool. I feel honored. <laughs> yeah, man. Next step, the Nobel Prize for your uh, parking spot, but so far it looks promising. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. Michael, I've invited you because you are quite familiar with combustion. I had in the show Sarah McAllister, who's taken me into a fantastic journey through the scales of fire phenomena. And she's a person who's living from burning up wood crips. And then I thought you're a guy who's living from burning up PMMA slabs. So <laughs> that's pretty close. <laughs> But I think these combustion topics are really fantastic because there is not that much exposure to fire professionals on fundamental combustion. At least there was not that much in my education. And that's what I would like to discuss. However, before we start, I'm actually curious how much of fundamental combustion or fire phenomena you are teaching to your students uh, who are pursuing like uh, masters in mech engineering? Well, it, it really depends. So as you know, yeah. I was uh, faculty in University of Maryland and there, yeah. you know, we had graduate courses in sort of well, diffusion flames, but in combustion. And so master's and PhD focused on that. And undergrad, there was certainly quite a bit of combustion in the fire dynamics. And here at Berkeley, there are no fire classes. Hopefully next semester I'll get to teach the first. So there is a, a wildfire taught in sort of the environmental science and policy mm -hmm. side. But hopefully I'll get to teach the first engineering 
wildfire focus course in the next semester or two. And then we have traditional combustion, which used to be more energy and you know engine focused, but we're trying to transition this. My grad students, obviously, that are doing research get a little more into detail, but I'd say as well that not, not all of my students are focused on fundamental combustion. I mean, we apply, it's such a mixed field, heat transfer, fluid mechanics, there's the combustion, but in wildfires, we're looking at risk analysis, we're looking at emissions, and it's our field is so interdisciplinary and in tying things together. So, yeah, within mechanical engineering, we do we mm. do a bit of the fundamental combustion, but I think it's a broader field, and it, it takes a lot of perspectives put together. And if you go into a mind of like a graduate uh, fire protection engineer, uh, you think this topic would be very relevant to them? I'm, I'm honestly curious because, as I mentioned, in my professional education in Poland, we had classes with the late Professor Konecki, my further supervisor who was teaching compartment fire dynamics. You know, Dougal Drysdale style compartment fire dynamics. And that was a huge fun. I, I really loved it. But, you know, mixed flames, diffusion flames, not so much. And then when I'm a consultant, I'm, a, let's say, field engineer, I don't feel that I lack this knowledge. But every now and then, I meet a problem where without this fundamental knowledge on especially turbulent uh, flames, it's difficult to solve the issue. And when I jump into modeling and fluid mechanics is something that we both do, I don't need this knowledge to run the CFD because it's a black box if I tell him to burn it will. But to understand what's happening in it, I... If I didn't uh, get this knowledge elsewhere, I would have difficult time. So I wonder, from your perspective in graduate fire safety engineer curriculum, how much should they know about fundamental combustion? Because you like you look to me like a combustion person. <laughs> I look like a yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Well, this is always this is the weird point, and I I remember at an IFSS yeah? symposium, Professor Fernandez Peo, who's here with me at Berkeley, received the. You know, Emmons Award gave a lecture yeah. and was saying how it was. Everyone always thought in the combustion community, "Oh, you're really in the fire community." In the fire community, "Oh, you're really in the combustion community." <laughs> okay. and I feel like I myself will always be in between. And now I have the wildfire and fluid. So you're in the triangle. <laughs> Although I take back, I, I say that everyone has been kind and accepting and everything. Okay. I don't feel like anyone, you know. But at the same time, everyone has this assumption. It, it, it's hard in an interdisciplinary field. But going back, you know, no, I don't think an engineer needs to solve the partial differential equations so that he can formulate the Emmons problem. But you do have to understand what makes a fire burn. Okay, where is the heat transfer coming? Why is the flame heating this up and making it spread? And what are the limits? Because you have your textbook common, you know, fire problems, and then you run into something new. You never want to be tricked into thinking something's just this common thing if there's something unusual. So I'll take, I'm sure something we'll talk about, inclined flame spread yeah. and the, the rate of burning and how something's happening where the, the flame is based and fixed is different than what goes on up ahead. 
And it all depends on the tilt of the flame and the ambient conditions. You don't need to be able to write the equations. I mean, in school, we're going to teach you to write the equations. But we want you to be able to think about it and to be able to understand that. And even for a firefighter, I think Mm -hmm. that intuitive knowledge is important because you, you get a sense of what the fire might be able to do and how it's behaving, how it's going to change in different types of fuels, how the ventilation conditions. And so I would stress, if you think of the mathy part, oh, you know, let's make sure they know the boundary conditions. Let's make sure they know how the equation is going to change. Even if you're not able to formulate it, you can think about it physically. And this is so important for modeling, like you mentioned. And that's, you know, this was the argument I made when I taught fluid mechanics to fire Mm -hmm. protection engineers. Why are we ever going to need this equation? I'm like, well, 25 years ago, a practicing engineer, no, you're not going to need to do more than pipes for sprinklers. Except, yeah, wait, you are, because you're going to run a CFD code. And you put garbage into a black box, you get garbage Mm -hmm. out. How are you going to run a CFD code if you don't understand, you know, the basics fluid mechanics and what goes into a Navier-Stokes equation? Do you need to solve it for a CFD code? No. But you need to know the pieces that work and what's assumed and what's not. Because, you know, it, if you were installing a sprinkler system, if, mm. if you don't think of the pressure at the head, I mean, you, you can arrive at so many, so many factors. And so I, I focus on that. I think people should have that fundamental understanding so they can think of what would happen and be surprised when something unusual happens and try to figure it out. I think that kind of knowledge is important for, for all fields dealing with fire. And mm. let's face it, fire is kind of dangerous. It's it's good to get an intuitive sense of what's happening. However, that intuitive sense is very difficult in, in fire. This is my theory. <laughs> People think in a linear manner and fires are very nonlinear. And <laughs> for example, um, we're in a commissioning a road tunnel now in Poland. And we were doing a test fire in the tunnel in which we wanted to set a heat detector above where we were located with the fire. So we've done approximately one megawatt pool fire in it. And everyone was, yeah, that's not big enough. That's really a small fire. We need bigger fire to set that up. Okay, so we've done like 1.3 megawatt fire, a little bigger. We've merged the hands together. It was a bigger fire. They were like, no, 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 this fire is not that big. So we've pushed it to the limit. And from our pants, we've received like something 1.7 megawatt fire. That's not a huge change if you consider it's only 400 kilowatts more. But at this fire, everyone was like, oh my God, you're going to destroy the tunnel. That fire is too big. And like, no, no, it's just, it's the same incremental rise as the previous one. It's it's just, you know, radiation is in the fourth power of temperature. So if we change the temperature by a few hundred degrees, you are starting to feel it on your skin. And this, if you don't know the fundamentals, if you don't recognize the fact that radiation is the fourth power of temperature, or that the plume uh, flow is in the three above two power of heat release rate, you uh, lose the ability because you will think that things change linearly and they are not. And the second story, when I I discovered the importance of combustion and that segues to the inclined fires, I approached the project in my career where we wanted to determine the consequences of a fire of a, a large screen that was hanged underneath a sports arena roof, you know, like these huge boxes they have in the middle of sports arenas. So I wanted to figure out what's the size of the fire of that thing. And there was absolutely no resources that would allow me. But it's made of 
like simple plastics, ABS or something. So I figured <laughs> out, okay, let's calculate it. And it, okay, I didn't, we made up the number at the end. I was not able to calculate that. So here, this inclined fire spread, if you are able to solve that, that's brilliant. And that's something you've done in your PhD, right? You were testing inclination aspect on the flame spread. Tell me how Careful how you state it. Would you state solved it? No, not at all. <laughs> we found new nuances. No, I mean, the point we came up with was that the burning rate in the spiralysis region yeah. varies differently than the heating downstream. And so as you incline the fuel, it may spread fastest at a different angle than which it burns the fastest. So the heat release rate and the spread rate aren't necessarily correlated. And to me, this goes back to flammability. How do you yeah. classify flammability? Well, flammability now has to take into account geometry, which we always mm. knew it did for the thickness of a material, but you incline it differently. The fire may spread differently under Earth gravity. Let's not even get into micro. Okay. No, no, no. We can get there later. But you, you have to consider that the behavior of how the flame is centered over there mm. and how the heat's transferred, which has something to do with radiation and the shape of the flame, and then how it's transferred downstream, mm. how the plume attaches, and how that changes with the angle. Those two mechanisms sometimes are aligned of when they increase, and other times they, they deviate. And so you can have flames that spread really fast, but don't have a high burning rate. And then another time, you know, you can have the pull fire with a high burning rate, but almost no spread rate because it's mm -hmm. the angle and the radiation. And so, you know, if you're saying flammability, it's very hard to say, do you mean the ignitability? Do you mean mm -hmm. the potential heat release rate? Do you mean the maximum mm -hmm. potential spread rate? Because sometimes the material, all of those are high. Sometimes only one of them is. And so I think it just goes back to what I was saying for combustion. You don't want to think of just an outcome. And that's why I sometimes hate pass-fail tests. Okay. I always like to think I'm of... I'm doing them for a living. <laughs> I know. And, and we work with them too. But, you know, you want to you wanna get a number and you want to know why you have it so that you can really yeah. classify. I mean, there has to be a line drawn. That makes mm -hmm. sense. I mean, you have to choose a line that works. But you also have to think that there's a reason why something is behaving worse or not that allows you to improve it. And that allows you to think of, well, in a real situation, is this test actually testing reality or not? You know, so is this material going to be flammable in the situation that I'm applying it? Is it right next to a heat source? Is there something different? So that's why we see so much work in fire, because that isn't always taken into consideration. And even though a material or something passed the test, it then fails and we have a lot of work. You've mentioned the uh, pyrolysis zone and because I'm prepared, I know there's uh, pyrolysis zone, uh, flame zone and plume zone. And But I would love if you could tell the uh, listeners how these zones differ from each other and uh, like what's driving the, the phenomena in, in each. What differs and where's the boundary between them? Because you've said that uh, the spread may be not the same thing as the, let's say, peak heat release rate, or you may have quicker spread or maybe larger heat release rate, but not necessarily at the same angle. So where would be that boundary that differentiates between the spread and uh, the maximum heat release rate? That's like, wow, that's fascinating. 
Yeah. So when we talk about this, we're thinking about pyrolysism. Pyrolysis is just the burning material coming out. So mm-hmm. as we know, you know, it's let's say we have a piece of plastic. So it's the solid plastic stuff that's burning, but it's not burning while it's a solid. It's being vaporized. So, so you're getting pyrolysis gases, as we call it. So flammable vapors are coming out from the heat from the fire or the surroundings, mm-hmm. and those are igniting in the fire. And then we have what we call a diffusion flame. Oxygen, okay. fuel, they meet together, they burn. It's not like your stove, which is pre-mixed in beautiful blue. Instead, mm-hmm. we get our it is. sooty <laughs> yellow flame with, it's not perfect, but the fuel and oxygen meet. So let's imagine it's just this flat piece of plastic. You get the fire burning on top. You have that nice yellow flame. That whole region of the plastic burning, that's your pyrolysis zone. That's the mm-hmm. area that's actually burning. Now, if you take that, the flame goes up. We call that yeah. a pool fire, right? The flame is rising up, and there's all beautiful correlations for how high that plume might be. Now, if you tilt that and you put it vertically up, part of that is still that pyrolysis zone that's burning. And some of that flame goes up buoyancy, Mm-hmm. is creating a flow and driving that flame up. But now that flame is no longer pointing straight in the air. It's pointing all along that surface because that surface is a vertical piece of plastic. And so all of that zone ahead of that burning region is getting hot, right? Mm-hmm. That flame is adding a lot of heat to the unburned or virgin materials, as it's often called in the literature. So as that material heats up, it's eventually going to ignite. And that's going to cause flame spread. So flame spread is just this process. You have the burning. Depending on the geometry and the conditions, the flame has heat transfer to stuff that hasn't burned. Eventually, the stuff that hasn't burned ignites, and it spreads. And it can be constant. So in like what we call thermally thin, so like a piece of paper, mm-hmm. it may burn sort of constant. So the same amount of stuff is burning because it burns out really quick. In a thick piece of plastic, the plastic just keeps going. And so that material can just accelerate because more and more mm. stuff is burning over time. And a lot of times in like a wildfire, it is acceleratory over a slope because more and more material is burning as it goes up. And so even though we talk about solving for a, how fast a fire may spread, that number is just some estimate because really it's changing constantly over time because more and more things are being ignited. Yeah. So those are sort of the, the stages um, when we think about it. And then the heating in yeah. any zone, they're not necessarily coupled. So yeah. the heating to the stuff that's burning, when it's a pool fire, mm-hmm. you got a big flame on top. And yeah, if it's thick, radiation thick dominated, yeah, yeah the, the bigger the flame, the radiation's going straight down into the pool. Yeah. And so it's getting a lot of heat there. Now we tilt it vertically, and the area above... That's now getting a lot of heat from the flame, but the flame has stretched. So now there's less flame heating the burning region, but more heating the spreading region. And so there, you kind of have this balance. Some regions might have faster spread, but the burning rate starts to go down because the flame isn't heating it as well, and vice versa. And it's not just by angle. It depends on how big it is. The bigger the flame, the more radiation, less convection. So these factors all play with each other. This theater of different heat transfer modes is is fascinating. And to my fellow engineer practitioners, this is so more practical than you would think. Because if you consider, for example, a facade fire, 
That's exactly what Michael described. It's a thin flame on the surface of a vertical body. And even if your facade, let's say, is incombustible, you still have this heat transfer to the facade, which, let's say, is aimed at destruction. It will cause uh, some mechanical failure of the elements sooner or later. But now, we as the fire scientists or, or fire engineers, we're often, and I had a podcast episode about it, we're often focused on measuring temperatures. So if you plug a, a thin thermocouple into your inclined fire, into your pool fire, the number will be roughly the same, probably even higher in your vertical fire because of the better better diffusion, right? But if you would calculate the, the heat transfer during a second of the burning to your surface element that's next to that, it could be much less. And it's as engineers, we often focus so much on temperatures and the temperature in my... On my wall, uh, the flame was like 500 degrees. That's horrible. But you never take into account that it was like five centimeter thin flame, which has a radiation factor of like 0.1 or something because it's very thin. So it doesn't really matter that temperature was that high. And only when you are aware of this phenomena, you are able to actually quantify the threat, right? Right. And and this isn't just in the fire protection field. I mean, in wildfire, which I do yeah. a lot of work, and, and the, you know, here in California, there's an awful yeah. lot. You know, this temperature was much hotter. Yeah. Was it really hotter? It was higher than melting point of steel. <laughs> but it's, it's all about the radiation. And it's yeah. all about, I mean, in convection too, but it's okay. about the heat flux. I'm teaching heat transfer to mechanical engineers this semester. And so explaining the importance of heat flux is, is a major goal of the class because temperature is going to be important if you're worried about the steel object and whether it starts mm. to degrade or the glass and it's going to shatter or whether you're at the point of ignition of a material mm. because the thermal theory works pretty well. But if you want to understand the heating and whether something mm. will ignite, it's got to be heat flux, which is yeah. the rate of heating which causes that temperature rise. And so most people in the in the public don't understand that nuance, like you said. And it it's critical to actually getting a fundamental understanding. And I was actually, before you said it, facade fires are just a perfect example of where this comes to play. Yeah. And not just the facade. So you could have flames coming out of a window up ahead could have it burning over these flammable substrates they put on. But I think it was a student of Jose Torero when I first started at Maryland, visited and was working before everything was really well known mm -hmm. about these facade fire issues where they were looking at, at flow and gaps. So yeah. what if you had cavity, a gap yeah. between two materials? And I, why would we have a cavity? Flammable facades, right? You fill it with expandable mm -hmm. foam, the foam burns out. And now the heat's re-radiating and the foam burns out super it's, quickly and it drips. Yeah. And so even though it passed a test when you specially sealed it, when you actually put it on a building, there's so many fire safety hazards there. Because scale matters. It's, it's a different animal when you put it on a 10 meter long wall, three meter tall than a small sample in your facade test. And also if you make a facade test and you are lucky with placing your cavity barriers just below the thermocouple levels. Well, congratulations, you've passed the test. But, you know, 
It's difficult for me to do these statements because I know it's ridiculous and I run a fire lab. So <laughs> it's, I hope I don't get fired for this. But <laughs> Oh, I, I, I mean, but, but this is what I'm saying. I mean, we need tests. We, we, we need, need to yeah. define a line between where we consider acceptable. Nothing's 100% safe. It's never going to be. But what's that acceptable level that we want to strive for? where we can mitigate it. The people at the test labs, right? And the people designing, that's the job of the engineer to think about these issues and to make sure that they're judiciously choosing a test and judiciously designing the material. And if you think through the process of what a fire might do, you're mm-hmm. doing some real due diligence, I think, of trying to design a safe system. There's always unexpected, but we, you know, that's, we keep learning. That's why we we listen. There's new research. There's codes get updated. and But that's why I love tests that don't just give yeah. a pass-fail. But if we learn more, we might learn that we have to change that threshold. We have to modify. and allows us to look back. That's one of the things that is carried through the podcast for a long time, that observation is surprisingly powerful. And maybe sometimes we should be more focused on seeing and understanding our experiments rather than putting a thousand thermocouples inside and just creating an unbearable plot of all of them. <laughs> You've mentioned a few times the wildfires and that's theme close to your heart. You also said that you're in this triangle of wildfire science, combustion and, and, and fire safety engineering. That's, that must be a fun position, actually. <laughs> so for now, in our discussion, we had the inclined fuel. We had my huge screen or a bunch of plastic materials and against the flame. But in wildfire, it gets more complicated because you're playing with porous fuels, which probably changes a lot, at least uh, Sarah told me it does. How would this inclination play a role in wildfire? And uh, maybe you, you can tell me, for example, in the Crone Fire, what really is driving the fire and what an engineer should know to have this intuitive understanding of what the fire could look like. Yeah, so so I'll step back because if mm-hmm. we want to teach for an engineer, so I I was really lucky to have the opportunity to teach wildfire to engineers in Maryland, and you know the first thing to understand is you lose control in a wildfire, and I say that mm-hmm. because in a building we design a fire safe system and we estimate the fuel load. What fuels mm-hmm. can you bring in? We have suppression systems. We have barrier walls. In a wildfire, you don't. The weather changes, and every day the sun shines, the fuel load grows, right? <laughs> like, yeah. it's it's continually growing. And then there's, like, ecological changes, and you say, oh, I'll add a fire break. Well, fire breaks don't help very much. I mean, it's it's more for firefighting and fire suppression to give those, those gaps. Unless the fire is pretty small, which it is sometimes, it doesn't help much. And so... So basics of wildfire, right? It can spread on the ground. Sort of as surface mm-hmm. fire, it can all, you know either the smoldering fire on the surface it can spread through the surface fuels like the brush, the grass, and the trees, and then it can also jump up to the crowns, which you mentioned. And so this crown fire is often considered extremely hazardous because the fire tends to race both because there's higher winds at the top of the crowns mm-hmm. and there's less drag. And also because you've got incredibly loose fuels. Think of those pine needles, which also have flammable fuels in them that we haven't fully understood. Sarah mm-hmm. McAllister, who was a previous guest, has looked into yeah. some of that. But it can spread incredibly rapidly through those, those very 
you know, loose fuels. And it takes some extreme conditions. It has to be pretty dry. And you have to have a fairly large fire that can jump up the snags and stuff into the crown. But when you get sustained crown fires, they do move very fast. And so, you know, in wildfire, we're often looking at spread rates. And so crown fires are, are very fast. And I don't think they're fully understood either. Another situation is that fires can be driven by wind and fires mm-hmm. can be driven by slope. And so the wind makes sense. You blow more wind, the flame tilts ahead, heats more material faster, and spreads faster so long as the material's there. On a slope, the same thing happens, except it's not like the wind forces it. The fire pulls the wind and drives itself. And so there's a self-acceleratory process. And some of it can happen on flat ground too, with a big fire driving its own weather. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes on a slope, that's just a natural process where the fire, the buoyancy is pulling more air, which pushes the flame down. And so it drives itself and and it doesn't move in a linear speed. It accelerates. It's not just like a 1D process either. Mm-hmm. So if we think of the flame on just like a flat plane spreading up, it's going to spread and it may accelerate. But what if you like curve in those walls and make it a ravine that sloped? Well, now there's no air flowing in from the sides. And now that flame has nowhere really as the air is pushing in to go, but just slam flat on the surface. Yeah. And suddenly you're jetting hot flammable vapors far ahead of the, the flame front. And it's just going to cause this dramatic acceleration. And so Folks like Domingos Vegas in Portugal and others have looked at become eruptive fires or accelerating mm-hmm. fires. You know, I think eruptive is probably the wrong term, but there are situations for the slope fire spread where you can get very fast flame spread. And it loops back to fire protection engineering. There were a lot of investigations, particularly by Dougal Drysdale, after the King's Cross fire in London. Yeah. King's Cross fire occurred in the, the tube station where they had an escalator which was sloped up, and the walls were all shellacked wood, which was very flammable. And then we still don't know if the if there was a pressure movement of the, the tube moving through, but essentially the fire was forced through that tube to move up. And it just spread incredibly rapidly because that flame is just pushed against the flammable materials, igniting more and more and accelerating. That can happen in wildfires too and have been the cause of some of these deadly burnovers because people don't expect it to just jump in the behavior. You're Um, back to the intuitive understanding of a fire because this is a particular combination of conditions in which this particular flaming behavior can occur. If you didn't have this valley through which the wind would flow, you would not have this behavior. If it was like free to ventilate through, you would not have this behavior. If you didn't have the fuel prepared for burning, you would not have this behavior. But it's this extremes in, in which people lose lives, actually. And that's common in not only wildfires, it's common in building fires. And in building fires also, it's not, uh, well, for civilians, it's um, all in the fire growth where, where they usually lose their life, being uh, surprised by the fire and without the weight of escape. But for firefighters, it's when the ventilation path changes. That's the, the difficult one. Someone opens the doors to the backyard or something at the lower level and suddenly the the pressure plane drops in the building and and it's all different for the people inside. That's how many firefighters lost their lives. There are phenomena like backdraft that 
are also intimately connected with this flow and fire theater and uh, creating this explosive almost uh, combination of fuel and oxygen that promotes very rapid burning that in the seconds changes the, the scene. So in wildfires, this is also probably something very dangerous for the people on the ground, right? It's the changes. And so the changes, yeah. they, it's often termed extreme fire behavior. And I think it was more recently redefined as basically any fire behavior that's unexpected. Okay. It's considered extreme. And so I talked about the fire, but let's say we're, let me tell you where wildfires are really challenging. Embers are firebrands. Oh, yeah. So it's not just the fire that you're tackling, but the fire will send flammable pieces high into the air and shower them ahead of the fire in locations unknown to start new fires. And this has also resulted not only in destruction of communities, but also in deaths of firefighters, because mm. you don't expect the fire to pop up in front of you and then it's behind you and suddenly you have an entrapment situation. But there's you know, a lot of research going on to these embers or firebrands, which are almost always smoldering. They can be flaming too, but they're smoldering pieces. They are lofted in the plume and they, they can literally go miles or kilometers ahead of the fire front and start new fires. And so that really changes the dynamic of, of how you think about it. Man, you're so good. You could run the podcast on your own. That's, that's like the next point of, on my list, spotting and firebrands. <laughs> And I'm personally a huge fan of, of the work of Ali Tahidi and Nigel Kay and yourself on this on the firebrand aspect of wildfires and the spotting phenomena. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. And it's something that really ties the wildfire science to building science because it's these little chunks of burning material that connect both worlds in many cases, right? So tell us a bit more about this phenomena. How does it come to life and how in the hell the, the fire is able to throw 20 centimeter chunk of wood over a distance of nine kilometers because it's unbelievable. Well, you have to see fires to understand it. So yeah. um, you mentioned Ali Tahiti, who was a postdoc of mine and now is a, a professor at San Jose State, also here in the Bay Area in California. Uh, Nigel K in Clemson University and NIST does a lot of work. There's a, there's a, there's a small, you know, clique who works mm -hmm. in these embers and firebrands and, you know, any material as it burns out, cellulosic or like, you know, woody material is going to start to char and it's going to smolder. And think of those glowing embers, that charcoal pieces, mm. just like your fire. You see the little sparks, the little things yeah, that are yeah. flying off. Those are embers. They're just small. They're just small. Now think of a fire that's blowing pretty hard and you have all those little sticks. The pine needles themselves, they burn out pretty quick, but the sticks and the bark and the pieces and the wind's blowing as it chars, and as it degrades, it starts to kind of crumple and crack, and things break off. And some of those things, if a fire has 200-foot-high flame lengths, mm. I don't know how to convert that into meters, but it's very large. Very um, large, yeah. And suddenly, you can loft something that's the size of a log or something. It's rare, mm. but it can happen, depending on the wind speeds. And so what happens is that just a blizzard or a shower of these materials can fly ahead if you have enough wind and a high enough plume. The fire itself is also pumping air up, right? It's mm. buoyant. And it can pump embers up too. And so some of them can get lofted into the larger atmospheric flow and land up ahead. And that's most of the basis of our ember codes 
like the predict where they go, are all about what's the maximum distance they can go. So how far can they go in the plume before they run out of fuel and can't mm-hmm. smolder anymore? There's a lot more that we try to do with that now. And it's not, you know, it's all sort of being added over time. But that was the basis of those ember codes and how we calculate how far they could go. But that's what happens. Those sticks degrade. And we did some experiments at IBHS, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety in South Carolina. And they have this giant uh, wind tunnel that can blow down a house. We were just burning basically Christmas trees. And they were running these experiments. We got to record them. And you can see as the as the fuel degrades, the fire finishes and it's smoldering. And so each stick just starts to like, it starts to bend a little bit and it flies off, flies off, flies off. And then you just get this shower from a single bush or a yeah. single tree and imagine a whole forest. Now, a lot of them just land and do nothing, but a few may actually ignite. And there's more closer to a fuel, but sometimes it can land far ahead. So it's so stochastic. It's so random, but so important. What's the lifetime of this particle when it lands? Is it like in seconds, minutes, hours? Depends on the size of the of the particle and the wind speed it's encountering. We I don't want to go too far into technical detail, but yeah, it, it just it de- it depends on how much fuel is is in there. Remember, smoldering if it's not flaming is a slow process. I know, so it can fester and smolder for for a good period of time. It could. It could be an, an hour scale. Uh, because if it's not in seconds, but more in like minutes or hours, it means yeah. these things can accumulate over time. And yes. probably with every another ember that is trapped at a certain location of your building, you are creating this higher probability that they will transition to flaming and then create uh, yes. an ignition conditions for your building, right? And you said the next factor, right? So I was just talking about how they get generated, yeah. how they get lofted. But then eventually they ignite things. And so there's a lot of experiments where you like pile them up in in beds of pine needles. If you get enough in a bed of pine needles and some wind, poof, they're always going to ignite in a bed of dry pine needles. But on a structure, it's pretty rare to get a single ember to ignite. But if you get a couple or you get a pile, then it starts to become more and more likely that your deck or, or something in a crevice is going to ignite. And it's igniting is this interesting process because you have a smoldering piece, which maybe doesn't have quite enough energy. And then you have more smoldering pieces added. And eventually that has enough heat to start to smolder the material it lands on. And then enough wind picks up where it transitions Mm -hmm. from smoldering to flaming, which to make our lives harder is, again, a very stochastic and completely, Mm -hmm. it's not completely random, but it's all probabilistic, you know? You, any experiment has to be rerun a, a bunch of times because one time it'll ignite, the next time it won't. So we would say it ignites maybe sixty percent after doing thirty experiments. You know, we, you know, transition to flaming is a really hard thing to characterize, but that's critical to whether you're going to start a new spot fire or you're going to ignite that part of a building. And yeah, I think there's been some nice experiments by uh, Sam Manzello and Sayaka Suzuki. Japan and at NIST, with they have this dragon, so they throw a lot of embers at a structure, and you can see them accumulate and then eventually ignite. and And understanding that process, you know, helps us think about how we designed. It's, it's fascinating because if it was not hard enough, uh, you're now uh, creating an aerodynamics problem of a building in in wind and where the 
under pressure zone will go and where the vortices will form around the building. And uh, our buildings are not very aerodynamic. They're very vortice friendly <laughs> in terms of where these wow. things can land. And yeah, I saw pictures from, I think it was the Bay Area where you, you were hit quite hard with wildfires. People were with these huge logs after, after wildfire. It was really um, astounding that the fire can spread like this. But then again, I guess most of us don't appreciate the size of a large wildfire. Like this really massive wildfire. Yeah, I mean, Berkeley here has, has a long history. The Tunnel Fire in 1991, which Pat Pagney, who was a big leader in the fire safety community for many years, investigated and they found that a lot of the spread was driven by cedar shingles. Mm. So if you're not familiar, they're very light wood, very, mm. we've tried them in the lab, super easy to ignite. Okay. And they break into little like wafers, which just, they're perfectly aerodynamic. And so they're just going to float down the hill to the next one. And, and they, will, they won't even necessarily be smoldering. They'll retain the flame pretty well. And so it's a worst case scenario of something that's easy to ignite and flying the fire to your neighbor's house. And that was a really deadly incident just due to the, the timing. It wasn't huge as a fire. It's just the conditions and the smoke. People couldn't get yeah. out. It's not always the big fires that are the, the worst, and it's not all deadly fires that were big. It's another thing that goes into the intuitive seeing of the fires. Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be big. Uh, on my list, I have one more final thing, and that's the, probably the coolest of them all, or maybe hottest of them all, actually. It's the fire wheels. <laughs> For some reason, I don't understand. You've made a scientific career on fire wheels. They are super fascinating, super interesting, and they come in, in so many different, let's say, flavors. And uh, I, I really enjoyed your review on wheel fires. Uh, they range from tiny ones to ones that devour cities. But there's this one that you have observed as the first, or your group has observed as the first, the blue fire wheel. And I remember it was like, uh, it was really cool uh, for the community because it was something from our community that went viral and it was everywhere. Everyone was talking about your blue wheels. Please tell me the story, how you guys have observed this for the first time and what was your reaction for, for, to this discovery? Okay, well, this, this is a fun story. So I think most people know I was working on flame spread and things. And so a new yeah. colleague, Elena Ron, who's very well known in numerical combustion, mm -hmm. explosions, high speed, so not fire at all. And we were chatting about things we'd like to do. And we also had some discussions with Lex Smiths, another professor at Princeton who was playing with fire worlds because he liked them. And he was from Australia originally and wanted to <laughs> learn more. And we said, well, how can we work on this? You know, it's a fire safety issue in wildfires, but like tornadoes, you're not going to put them out. Mm -hmm. You're not going to we already have an idea, you know, Saito and, and its others have a good grasp of where they can form. What do we do from here? And then we were with one of her postdocs, Wawa Zhao, and one of my grad students at Jay Singh, watching YouTube videos, mm -hmm. literally. And we saw a firewall form and a Jim Beam factory fire. So this is a whiskey plant. And it turns mm -hmm. out, we did some Discovery Channel special later, 
turns out when we investigated this, the original distilled, so they actually dilute it before they, mm-hmm. they give it to you. So before they do that, it's very high alcohol content. And lightning struck this plant and the lake formed of it and a giant fire and a fire world spun up. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at it, we saw, wow, it almost looks like it's eating that. And then somehow we got into the deep water horizon and we're looking at how they were cleaning up oil spills within situ burns and something clicked and we said, oh, maybe we can clean up oil spills with this. And that's what started it. We took a disaster and Mm -hmm. said, how could we use this phenomenon for good? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, how could we get funding to do Mm -hmm. this work? We didn't get much, okay? (laughs) We stretched it thin as much as we can. And a grad student, Ram, who was amazing and used his support to do some amazing work on this. But what happened was a late night with with uh, Wawa, who's a postdoc and is now a professor at USTC, and Jay, who's now a professor in IAT Kanpur, and they were playing with this. And we were like, well, let, let's keep optimizing the firewall until we can get like really clean. Like, how good can we get? Yeah. And then one time the fire world just went whoop and became this little perfectly blue spinning top mm-hmm. on heptane. I mean, it's like gasoline. It okay, doesn't yeah. burn blue. No. It doesn't get <laughs> pre-mixed on its own. And so a lot of people have said, oh, we've observed that before as it goes down. But I think something that changed was the fact that we did it over water. It was perfectly smooth. Mm-hmm. And the walls just like... So the way to make a firewall in the lab is the walls are tangential. So like Mm. the air comes in at opposite directions. So it has to spin inside that chamber. Mm -hmm. And so just tweaking it over a couple of weeks came up with this. As a caveat, soon after, uh, there's a little mishap. Some crude oil spilled on the side, lit the experiment on fire. The fire department came. There was some delays. (laughs) So... Always be luckily we had some very skilled people and the fire extinguisher we were provided didn't work. So they had to run and get another one, which is why the smoke detector tripped. And it's a long story. We have designed it so that that can't happen now. But uh, another reason to think about what could happen in any experiment. But the discovery of the blue world was was a fascinating and fun thing. And I, I think the encouragement uh, that Elaine Iran, my colleague there, gave for us, let's just dive into this new discovery rather than just going down the path of just, you know, characterizing. Let's just, let's dig into this. This is so interesting. And that's what we did. And we were able to publish it and understand it. And we've gone back. We're working on cleaning up oil spills with these larger fire worlds as well. And we've seen significant reductions in soot when we form them over recruit oil fires, but the blue world was this, you know, discovery that we've missed something in a behavior that we've been seeing because we we changed the focus, we changed the approach, dug into it. It was, it was fun. That's uh, that's fascinating. And in, in a way, understanding physics of this fire behavior is directly a pathway to technology because you mentioned it's, it can be used to clean oil, but it's also very pure combustion when it's blue. And if we can get less messy combustion, it provides us ability to do things in, let's say, more environmental friendly way, maybe not in terms of CO2, but in terms of every other nasty thing that we emit while burning stuff. So this is Definitely much, much appreciated. And as I mentioned, the wills go into different flavors. There's also these huge wills that happen in wildfires or even city conflagrations. Is this something also that um, 
was of interest to your group or? Well, I mean, in some ways. So you, you mentioned, so we had this review paper, which we, we wrote for annual review of fluid mechanics. So it had a very fluid mechanics flavor of what, what processes were driving the creation and how did they form it. You know, firewalls form at all scales. We see the little blue world on the centimeter scale. I don't know if it can go much smaller. We haven't seen mm -hmm. that yet, but it all the way up to kilometer scale in atmospheric flows. And a colleague, Neil, in University of Nevada, Reno, is now doing more and more studies of these larger scale firewalls that are at an atmospheric scale. They're literally tornadic, and mm. there has been some devastating effects for them. But I feel like they're being seen more and more in fires as we get more of these extreme fires. You know, firewalls are going to form, it's sort of this vortex phenomena, whenever you have the right conditions. You need that upward source of buoyancy, which is going to come from any fire. Mm. And you need something to generate that swirl. Mm. It could be the trees, it can be the wind, it can be the topography. So they often form on the backside of a slope or on the edge of a fire as it's mm. spreading. The wind's right, it'll spin them up and they kind of like run along the ends. And then if the whole shape of the fire is right and the wind is right, you can get these very large structures that form, which is sort of what they think happened like after the Tokyo Great Kanto earthquake fire, which was maybe 30,000 people dead or, or something terrible like that. We still don't understand everything about them, despite what we've done, which is, is fascinating. But I, I think a lot of the mechanisms that started, probably similar, but as we saw from the Blue World, there's a lot of nuances in, the, in each process. And so are we going to stop all the firewalls by understanding it? No, but we can still learn from it and learn where we might predict where there, there's a possibility. I mean, these larger scale ones, they see signs of it on radar. I mean, like this is... You can see the squirrely motion on the ray. Oh. Yeah, that, I mean, they see the same sort of signatures they look for for tornadoes. I mean, they're at oh. an atmospheric scale and... Are they, we can fight over terminology. Are they still firewalls if it comes from the you know, fire weather in or from the ground up? They come out of your department into the <laughs> tornado department. So yeah, you're not exactly. allowed to play with them anymore. <laughs> that's, yep. that, that's so cool. Uh, man, the fire science is, is a fascinating place. To wrap it up, it, there's, uh, it's been an incredible journey from... Uh, inclined surfaces to ground fires spotting to firewalls and uh, there's so much more to learn on each of these uh, phenomena and i usually ask people to refer to some resources but i actually know you have created an astounding base of resources at your berkeley site so i, I probably linked that even before my description of an episode that's how good this site is here you have an airtime advertise it as much as you want and i will do more because it's amazing yeah feel free to firelab.berkeley.edu a lot of resources are thanks to you know postdocs and students franz richter who's a postdoc came from guillermo rain's group where he's got his phd prepared a lot for new people interested in careers in fire science so yeah please check it out we post all of our papers too And I'm just, you know, happy to share it. I think it's really exciting to be working on the interface between these combustion and physical science of fire and how we apply it. And so that's also why we want to share the work is because we don't just want to do some esoteric fundamental work, but we want to figure out what the real problems are, understand them and 
find solutions and, and share them back with the community. That's our goal. And I'm very thankful for creating this uh, bunch of resources. I'm an user of them. I, I, I really appreciate putting them all in one place. And it's really great initiative and absolutely worth checking. It's the second best place after the podcast to learn about fire science. <laughs> Definitely the fire science show first. I, I, I'm delighted that this, this came together. It's so nice to hear colleagues, especially in this time we can't travel as much. Oh, yes. Hopefully these will be around for posterity you know it's just uh to hear people's perspective on the researchers mm. is rare and and i i appreciate it as well as learning about other fields and how people are applying it in industry and, you know we learn a lot and the whole diversity of the fire sciences is just astounding okay michael it was a, a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast all the resources that we've talked about the papers we've discussed will be linked in the show notes Thank you so much again for being here. And yeah, see you the next time. Cheers, yes. man. See you the next time. And that's it. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that one. I really liked talking to Michael. It, he was on the list of my dream guests for the podcast for a very, very long time. Pretty much since I've started the show, I always wanted to talk to him. And uh, I, I admire him a lot. He has a great career path in, in fire and is definitely one of the young rising stars of our community. And I hope you understand why his thoughts are really insightful and his research is, is really impactful on the world of, of fire safety engineering, wildfires, and then fundamental combustion as well. For me, it was interesting to see how the fluid mechanics interplay with fundamental combustion and how all of this in the end is a flow phenomenon, a heat transfer phenomenon, and trying to find a way how to connect this with with real world engineering. And I, I think we found some really good examples in the show that, that really illustrate of how important these fundamental aspects of fire science are for everyday practitioner. And now for the end, I would like to highlight once more firelab.berkeley.edu. It's a brilliant web page filled with resources. I'm, I'm truly amazed how they've pulled it up together with Franz Richter. And it's definitely worth checking out. And it's full of really useful stuff. So it really makes writing my show notes easier for this episode because everything is already out there. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked it. As usual, please share it with a friend. Uh, and share the knowledge about the podcast. Next week, another great guest, another great episode. So, yeah, see you next Wednesday. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.